there's nothing more relaxing than a stroll through a beautiful stretch of nature, like a wildlife preserve. Maybe even the newly opened Rocky Flats Wildlife Preserve near Boulder, Colorado. But then you hear that some animals in the nature preserve get hit by cars, and that's when you learn... The ones that are most likely to be killed accidentally happen to be deer that are trying to cross a road. And when a deer has been hit by a car and is killed, they often examine the body and they find that these deer have plutonium in their bodies. Well, if the deer can get plutonium in their bodies from running around Rocky Flats, and you suddenly realize that you are running around Rocky Flats... That's when you start to understand that you are in the middle of that seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we have an update on what's still happening at the Brunswick nuclear reactors near Wilmington, North Carolina, where hurricane and now tropical storm rainmaking machine Florence barreled into the coast and dumped a lot of rain. And the danger is not yet past. We'll talk with Dave Lockbaum, director of the Nuclear Safety Project for the Union of Concerned Scientists. And we'll learn specifically what's wrong with turning the Rocky Flats former nuclear weapons manufacturing site into a public-use wildlife refuge from Leroy Moore of Rocky Mountain Peace and Justice Center. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than was presented at this year's Emmy Awards. Not that anyone was actually watching. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, September 18, 2018, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. This week has been a cluster word I can't say on broadcast of nuclear news. We'll cut to the chase. Brunswick Nuclear near Wilmington, North Carolina with two GE Mark I reactors, the same model that melted down at Fukushima in 2011. Brunswick was hit hard by Hurricane Florence and had to contend with record rainfall and site flooding. After initially stating that they were going to keep the nuclear reactors running as long as possible, Duke Energy started to shut the Brunswick nuclear power plant down ahead of Hurricane Florence on Thursday, September 13. A Duke spokeswoman said that the company was following its procedures by shutting Unit 1 and 2 down on Thursday and also said that nuclear plants have procedures that require that they shut a safe amount of time before hurricane-force winds of at least 74 miles per hour are expected to reach the site. 
There's some contradiction in that story that I will go into in today's final thought. Of greatest concern is that the plant, according to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in a 2004 report, is considered waterproof up to 22 feet above sea level. That's because there's a 22-foot seawall to protect the facility against the ocean, which is four miles away. However, additional surges have come from the 20 to 40 inches of rain that fell and the flooding of the adjacent Cape Fear River, which is where Brunswick gets its cooling water. As of today, Tuesday, the water has already been measured in certain places as peaking at 24.33 feet high, meaning above the 22 feet protection of the facility. Is Brunswick safe yet? or at least as safe as any nuclear reactor can be. To learn the specifics of where we are now with Brunswick, I spoke with Dave Lockbaum, director of the Nuclear Safety Project for the Union of Concerned Scientists. A nuclear engineer by training, Dave worked in nuclear power plants for nearly two decades and can translate the industry's arcane technical specs into normal language. With so many conflicting or suspicious accounts of what's happening on site at Brunswick, I wanted to talk with a genuine expert, which I did at noon today, Tuesday, September 18, 2018. Dave Lockbaum, thank you so much for making time to talk with us today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks for having me. Help us understand the current situation at Brunswick 1 and 2 nuclear reactors. The two reactors uh, shut down in advance of Hurricane Florence's arrival. They remain shut down. The site was inaccessible for a while due to flooding in the in the area around the plant that blocked roads to and from the plant. The workers who were at the plant at the time basically were stranded at the site. As the storm passes and the dam- uh, the flooding and stuff that it brought are dealt with, the FEMA must review the emergency planning, emergency readiness capabilities around the site, and the plant will not be allowed to restart it until FEMA determines that those resources and readiness has been restored as well. So FEMA is the one who actually drops the dime that they can restart or not? Well, FEMA makes that call, that determination. They pass it over to their federal partner, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and then the NRC is the one that uh, green lights or red lights the restart of the reactors. Clarify for us the difference between a hot and a cold shutdown, because it was last week on Thursday that Duke announced they were shutting down the reactors in advance, as you stated, and that would lead to the assumption that they were literally shut down cold. But the NRC unusual report that was filed on behalf of Brunswick posted yesterday, Monday, September 17th, stated that the reactors were in a state of hot shutdown. What's the difference? When the reactor is shut down, the nuclear chain reaction that powers the nuclear engine is terminated. The hot shutdown means that the temperature of the water flowing through the reactor core through the reactor vessel is still above 212 degrees, the boiling point. Cold shutdown means that that water temperature has been reduced to less than 212 degrees. Perhaps the reason they stayed in hot shutdown was those type of plants are designed for the cooling to be done by normally powered from the offsite power grid. If the offsite power grid is gone because of the hurricane or other reasons, they have on-site emergency diesel generators that will provide electricity to that emergency equipment. If those fail for whatever reason, 
the third layer is batteries. Those batteries are only sized to power one safety system. That safety system uses steam produced by the reactor in hot shutdown to spin a turbine that's hooked up to a pump that provides makeup water to cool the reactor core. So by maintaining the reactor shut down but in hot standby, they retain the ability to use this last-ditch safety system should they have lost the first two layers of electrical power. Does this in any way impact the speed at which these nuclear reactors can be restarted? Does it have any impact on that at all? Well, if they do get the green light to restart, in hot shutdown, it takes less time to restart. It's a matter of a handful of hours. From cold shutdown, it's almost double the time. But it's really not that big a difference. It's maybe from cold shutdown, it might be six to eight hours. From hot shutdown, it might be half of that. So I think they were trying to keep preserve their uh, options in case they lost power, more so than trying to do a quick restart, because they've been down for several days and knew they would be down for the least of many hours. Last weekend, you put together a PowerPoint on Brunswick. Who was it for, and what specific issues did it address? A reporter from a paper in Washington, D.C., emailed me and asked me a number of questions about whether a storm surge or other or rainfall associated with a hurricane might flood the site and inundate the emergency diesel generators. They were also, some of the questions addressed, well, what other threats might the hurricane pose? So we did some research, found what the flooding levels were, and it looked like, based on the projected storm surge, that the diesel generator room would not be flooded so that that backup power source would remain available, at least in terms of storm surge and flooding threats. We also looked at one of the other problems that hurricanes pose is that they can cause debris, bring debris in the water up, and block the flow of cooling water through the plant. Cooling water is needed to cool emergency diesel generators. It's needed to cool the reactor core. It's needed to cool the control room and buildings. So if debris blocks the cooling water flow, then the plant's being challenged. About a decade ago, a a different hurricane, I forget its name, actually propelled jellyfish up against the intake of the St. Lucie nuclear plant in Florida and caused that plant to endure some, some... It came through it okay, but it was a challenge. You think jellyfish are reasonably harmless, and it wasn't an organized attack, but it did pose a problem for that plant. Actually, jellyfish have shut down more nuclear reactors, I think, than some of our activists have, including in Scotland when there was a bloom of them that jammed the intake. But getting back to Brunswick, in this PowerPoint, you cite sources that in around 2014, NRC inspectors identified a flaw affecting the water system pumps in response to the agency's post-Fukushima orders for a higher level of safety. What was that flaw? And to the best of your knowledge, had Duke addressed it before Hurricane Florence? The problem was there's a system called the service water system that provides the cooling from the nearby canal to the plant equipment, emergency equipment at the plant. There's another system housed in a building right next to it called the circulating water system that provides water for everyday use, everyday cooling. So there was a connection between those two buildings that would have allowed flooding in the circulating water building to enter and submerge the equipment in the service water system. So basically, the service water system would have been disabled by a flood less than they thought possible. It wouldn't have taken as big a flood as they thought 
it would take to disable that system, which would have put the plant in a hard spot. My understanding is that the NRC identification of that problem in 2014 led to its subsequent address. But, you know, the NRC does an audit. It doesn't look at every flood barrier and every flood. So they found this one. Was that the only one, or were there other vulnerabilities that still exist uncorrected? Each emergency diesel generator provides electrical power to safety equipment when support systems are available. And on your PowerPoint, you capitalized when. What could take out these support systems? And did that happen at Brunswick, or did we come close? These emergency diesel generators are fairly large. They're almost a locomotive-sized diesel engine. To start them in the speed that is necessary, they need a lot of support systems, lubricating oil that's pre-warmed, so it also a, a, an air system that gives some initial, starts turning the crankshaft, so it allows the engine to come up to speed in the few seconds that it's needed to do so. If those support systems are lost, like when off-site power, when the grid goes down due to the hurricane, those support systems, the you know, clock starts, they don't have capability to last indefinitely. If the diesels aren't started in that time, they may not be capable of starting when the need arises. So the diesel generators are important. They're supposed to be on-site backups, but they do have a connection to the grid that causes problems if it's lost. Was off-site power lost at any time, as far as you know, during Florence or in the aftermath? What I was told from by the NRC's uh, Region 2 public affairs office this morning was that the site never lost power, uh, so they never lost the connection between the plant and the off-site power grid. The emergency diesel generators were available. They weren't started because the need never arose, but they were ready to do so should the off-site power have been lost, but that it never came up or never went down, I guess, is the better way. A question that I tried to have answered last week by Duke, and they couldn't give me the answer, is how much fuel is stored on site for emergency diesel backup, meaning how long would it last if they had to be fired up? The regulatory requirements are that they have at least a seven-day supply of fuel oil for the emergency diesel generators. That The amount of fuel you use, obviously, it depends on how fast you're running the diesel generator. That seven-day supply is assuming that all the diesel generators are run at their maximum output, which is needed for an accident. In this situation, if the grid had been lost and the emergency diesel generators needed to step in for the loss of the grid, they wouldn't have needed as much. They wouldn't have needed to run at the same high power level, so that seven-day supply should have lasted longer than seven days, but it's not too many more than seven days. The assumption is, is that within those seven days, you are able to get a fuel or truck or replacement fuel on site to start replenishing the tanks. Which, of course, might have been problematic given the current level of flooding. It, it would have been a challenge. Uh, the assumption is it's an assumption. It's not a guarantee. Speaking of flooding, the seawall at Brunswick is 22 feet high, and that is to protect it from storm surge. Uh, the facility is three to four miles in from the ocean, and the storm surge did not reach that. However, there's a further danger of flooding from the adjacent Cape Fear River, which is where I believe the cooling water from the plant is actually drawn. And at at least one place on Cape Fear River, the level of water 
as of yesterday afternoon at 345, was measured at 24.33 feet, which is above the 22 feet. Also, Brunswick itself is at a 20-foot elevation. So we're already going higher, and there's still water draining off the mountains and coming into the river. What do we know about the latest stats on storm surge levels on the river, and might that have more direct impact on the structure than did anything that happened during Florence? The details about what the flood levels are and what might be impacted by a 25 or 24 foot uh, flood height are difficult to obtain. As a result of Fukushima, the NRC required every owner to do a detailed flood hazard reevaluation that looked at heavy rainfall, storm surge, tsunami, upstream dam failures, and so on. That flood hazard analysis was submitted in March of 2015 by Duke, but the NRC has not yet made it publicly available. So it's difficult to for, for anybody like me to go through and see what the hazard is or what the margin is. We know it's close. Their flood protection is supposed to be sufficient, but we won't know until they come out the other side of this, whether it was or not. Are we out of the woods yet? Well, I think we're getting near to the edge of the woods because as more and more time passes, the heat level in the reactor cores diminishes. So if something were to go wrong, either due to flooding or some other challenge, workers have more time to recover or respond to that event to prevent uh, disaster. More time isn't a guarantee of success, uh, but more time equates to greater likelihood of success. So I feel more and more confident or more and more comfortable as time passes, even though the nature of the beast is that the maximum flood height might actually be in the future. But again, even if that higher flood height causes problems, the workers have more time to intervene and prevent disaster. Anything you feel it important to add at this time? Well, I think the fact that the emergency was declared because the flooding made the site inaccessible, I think a lesson learned from this will be, are our staffing levels sufficient? Not only in terms of the number of people at the site, the number who were stranded, but do those people have food and, and other things necessary so that they can be on an island for a long enough period to ensure that they can do what needs to be done until relief comes to them? In this time, it looks like they were they came through okay, but we need to look at that and make sure that that answer is yes, not just that we hope that it's yes. That was Dave Lockbaum, director of the Nuclear Safety Project for the Union of Concerned Scientists. In a later communication from Dave, he added this information. FEMA implements a two-step process to evaluate emergency response resources and readiness to determine whether the storm reduced capabilities, meaning on-site at the reactors. If so, FEMA will advise NRC to not allow reactors to restart until capabilities have been restored or contingency measures put in place. So while the plant may be stable, the flooding around the plant likely degrades emergency response measures. It seems likely that the reactors will be ready to restart before surrounding infrastructure is ready. And it was this lack of ability for emergency responders to get on site if necessary, which caused the NRC to declare an unusual event at Brunswick as of Monday, September 17. Again, more about my interactions with Brunswick during today's final thought. 
In other news, the Rocky Flats so-called wildlife refuge in the buffer zone around a major Superfund site where plutonium pits were manufactured has been opened for people to hike and bike and run and play. On Sunday, September 9, Acting Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Andrew Wheeler toured the trails of the buffer zone outside the former nuclear weapons production facility and declared, It is safe! On Friday, September 15, partly in response to a letter from Colorado Representative Jared Polis, who is running for governor and who fiercely opposes opening the area to the public, Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke decided to delay the opening to gather additional information. Said collection of additional information took only slightly over an hour, which is when the Interior Department announced that the plans would move forward as originally announced. It was opened on Saturday, September 16, with plenty of activists there with signs and hazmat suits and mainstream media coverage that was favorable to the protesters. More about Rocky Flats on this week's second featured interview. The nuclear legacy of Three Mile Island continues as the U.S. seeks a 20-year extension to continue to store the nuclear waste from that accident at the Idaho National Laboratories. The core meltdown happened just outside of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania in 1979. Here it is 39 years later, and they're asking to be able to store the material there until 2039. It includes intact fuel assemblies. Nuclear is the gift that keeps on giving, whether you want it or not. At the Indian Point Nuclear Facility in New York, only 35 miles away from New York City, one of the two nuclear reactors on site was shut down on Friday, September 7, after workers discovered a leak in a backup cooling system. NRC Rep. Neil Sheehan said, Because this problem could affect the operability of safety injection pumps, plant operators determined a shutdown to conduct repairs was necessary. And while you're at it, keep it shut, would you please? In a ray of hope, America's oldest nuclear power plant, Oyster Creek Nuclear Generating Station in New Jersey, shut down as of Monday, September 13. Only 98 more to go in the U.S., in the UK on September 12, Professor and Dr. Christopher Busby was arrested and held for 19 hours under the Explosives Act before being released with no further action, no explanation, and no official apology. Busby, an outspoken critic of the British government's nuclear policies and expert witness on a range of nuclear legal cases, was held after officers reported feeling unwell during a raid on his property. Should have checked their diet for tainted donuts. British yellow journalism and tabloids had a field day denouncing Professor Busby, based solely on the fact that he often is a commentator on RT.com, because let's face it, Russia today does take nuclear matters seriously. Remember Chernobyl? And he was also treated as suspect because he wears a beret. Police took samples from his in-home laboratory and destroyed an experiment that he was working on before saying, eh, nothing to see here. Wales is getting dumped on by the nuclear industry. Japan's Hitachi is about to bulldoze a spectacular stretch of land in North Wales to make room for two reactors at Wifla B that experts agree will probably never be built. 
South of there, France's EDF is dumping radioactive mud a mile off the Cardiff coast to make way for construction of its Hinkley C EPR reactors on the English shore. While so-called experts claim the mud is safe, there was no testing for radioactively hot microparticles as found near other reactor sites. And the dumping ground in Severn Estuary is a special area of conservation where it is essential for the harm to wildlife to be assessed and mitigated or avoided. Activists point out that the mud will be deposited on mudflats in the estuary and up its tidal rivers, blow ashore as dust when drying out, or blow ashore from microspray generated by whitewater bubbles contaminating food-growing sites and gardens. And now... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. Trying to run two Fukushima model nuclear reactors during a hurricane? Opening a plutonium-contaminated so-called wildlife refuge to the public? Arresting a world-renowned scientist and smearing his reputation because he opposes the nuclear policies of his country? The entire nuclear industry is this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. We'll have this week's other featured interview in just a moment. But first, hey... It's my birthday in 11 days, and Nuclear Hot Seat needs your support to meet its monthly financial obligations. So let's make it a twofer. What do you say? Help me celebrate my birthday and support the show all at the same time. You know, if you look at it this way, Nuclear Hot Seat is my gift to you every week. So take a moment to consider what you get from Nuclear Hot Seat a weekly alternative narrative to the nuclear propaganda or dead silence that's all you hear on mainstream media. We work hard here to get behind the scenes, under the skin, and into the heart of nuclear matters, always from that different perspective, with fresh information you probably won't find no matter how hard you surf the Internet. If you value the information, doesn't it deserve just a bit of support from you? So help us out with a birthday donation so we can keep bringing you the kinds of verifiable information you don't normally get to hear on nuclear issues. Any amount is deeply appreciated. And it's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red donate button. Keep scrolling and you'll also find a big green donate button that allows you to quickly set up a recurring donation of $5 a month. And trust me, those $5 donations make all the difference in the ability of this show to keep going. So help launch me into my year and do what you can to help Nuclear Hot Seat to keep searching and sharing nuclear information that helps you understand what's really going on. Whatever you can do to help meet our expenses and keep Nuclear Hot Seat alive and growing, and me dancing the birthday dance, you've got my gratitude. Here's this week's other featured interview. Leroy Moore is a writer and former academic who since 1979 has focused on issues of public health, environmental well-being, and nuclear abolition related to the now-closed Rocky Flats nuclear bomb factory. These days, he's most closely associated with Rocky Mountain Peace and Justice Center. Note that when we spoke, it was just before the so-called wildlife refuge, a.k.a. plutonium-contaminated land, was open to the public for their personal contamination, uh, bad choices, uh, amusement. <laughs> Sorry, it's the Tourette's again. 
So while the so-called wildlife refuge wasn't legally open when we spoke, unfortunately, it is now. Leroy Moore, it's so great to have you with us here on Nuclear Hot Seat. I'm glad to hear your voice. You have been active on Rocky Flats issues since 1979 and worked successfully with others to help bring an end to weapons production there. Then you worked for the best possible cleanup of the plant's highly contaminated site. From your perspective, how effective has the government's highly self-touted cleanup been? Oh, I, I think it's very inadequate. They set standards that allowed them to leave a lot of stuff in the in the soil. And uh, it was very controversial getting them to establish standards for cleanup. They originally said they would clean it to 651 picocuries per gram. I don't know if you are familiar with that way of talking about things, but that's many times higher than any cleanup anywhere, anywhere. The public complained about it, and we just happened to be lucky that a DOE official was present in a public meeting, and I forced the uh, government to tell us about the standards they had just agreed to, the DOE, the EPA, and the State Health Department. When they said 651 picocurium per gram, the public exploded, and this DOE official happened to be there. So he forced them to uh, start all over. And eventually, it took a long time, but eventually they established cleanup at three levels. The top three feet of soil would be cleaned to 50 picocuries per gram. And between uh, three feet and six feet depth, it would be cleaned to uh, 1,000 picocuries per gram. And below six feet, they could leave everything. And a lot of the buildings were built, large, big portions of them were underground. So they just collapsed these buildings into the environment and then covered them with dirt. And uh, they were well below six feet, so they didn't do any cleanup in those areas. And there were also processed wastelands that were loaded with plutonium in that deeper area. So there's a lot of stuff in the uh, industrial area. What is now the Rocky Flats Wildlife Refuge was created after the cleanup was finished, and it encircles the old industrial area. So there's a lot of contamination in the old industrial area that is not on the refuge. This doesn't mean that the refuge isn't also contaminated. It is, but at lower levels. And they didn't do any, any of the cleanup in the refuge area. So the cleanup was very inadequate. What are the chances or the likelihood that contamination that was simply buried on the industrial site has been able to migrate into the wildlife refuge? Uh, well, some, some has. And there was actually a study done uh, years ago in which the man that did the study said that even if they cleaned the site, to as low as 10 picocuries per gram, which was recommended by the Rocky Mountain Peace and Justice Center, even if they cleaned it to that very small level, that in time, material leaving the site would exceed the state's standard for radiation in surface water. And there have been several occasions when that has happened. 
but he said it will happen, uh, and we can't do anything about it because I cannot determine the source of the plutonium. <laughs> so uh, that's a long-term look, and, and uh, goodness, rocky, the plutonium in Rocky Flats will be in the soil long after the Fish and Wildlife Service has disappeared and long after the U.S. government has disappeared, unless it lasts for many times longer than any government has. Plutonium has a half-life of 24,110 years, and that means in half a million years, it'll still there'll still be radiation there. Give us a picture of the site as it stands today. What part is the Superfund site of the former weapons manufacturing plant? What part is the proposed wildlife refuge? And what, if anything, is used to separate the two from each other? What they have now is a fence about four feet high that encircles uh, part of the site that still belongs to the DOE, Department of Energy, and that's the old industrial area. And that consists of about two acres of uh, land, and the refuge area is about nine acres of land. And uh, it totally surrounds the old industrial site. When we say that there's a fence around the industrial yeah. area, is this some kind of solid, like, concrete block fence? Is it a chain-link fence? How no, it's, much... no it, it's not a complicated fence at all. And it would be very easy for, uh, certainly easy for animals to go across it, and it wouldn't be difficult for humans either. Across the street from this proposed wildlife refuge, again, filling in the picture for Nuclear Hot Seat listeners, there's a high-priced subdivision of new homes. What, if any, protection is there in place between what might be coming off the wildlife refuge and this housing complex? There's nothing. The people that built those new houses, it's on the southern edge, of the, all across the southern edge of the Rocky Flat site, they built several hundred houses there, and they also are building this public school, and there will be a shopping center, and I think even a hospital. And all of that is very close, just over the fence from Rocky Flats, and there's only a fence separating them from, from the Rocky Flats site. And when the people that were responsible for building those homes checked the area, they claimed that there's no radiation, but the device they used to check for radiation would detect uranium, but not plutonium. There's very few uh, radioactive monitors that it can actually protect plutonium because it gives off a very weak signal and a weak radiation. And the uh, problem with plutonium is it cannot penetrate skin you know, so we can't get exposed to it like we could to uranium. The uranium just goes right through the human body, but the the radiation it releases, but the alpha particles, as it's called, that plutonium releases, cannot penetrate skin. And the worst way to be exposed to it is to inhale particles that are in the air, or to get it into a wound if you've scratched your knee or something like that. So um, once it's inside the body, the plutonium particle lodges somewhere, and it will stay there for the rest of your life, continually 
irradiating surrounding cells. So it, it's very, very dangerous to uh, get this inside the body. And there's really no way to stop it from happening if the material is blowing in the air. And the winds at Rocky Flats typically, several times a year, they will exceed 100 miles an hour. So the soil that may have this plutonium in it is being picked up and carried about, and anybody that's in the area is likely to breathe it in. It would probably take 30 years before a cancer or some other ailment happens. That's one of the things that the government may think they're not doing any harm, but they are. It's delayed response, and just because there's a wide span of time between cause and effect doesn't mean that they're not directly connected, but they can have denial about it simply because there is such a long period of time in between. And I think that pro-nuclear forces or those people who wish to ignore the nuclear dangers count on that time lag as getting them off the hook for any responsibility. I understand that both the EPA and the state health department say that the wildlife refuge is safe. What do they base this on, and who can officially disagree with this? I can only believe that they think the standards that they set for the cleanup are adequate and really protect people, but actually the standards allow some exposure. And they're not really removing the plutonium from the environment. And I'm talking only about plutonium, of course, without question, it's the most dangerous material at Rocky Flats. And it's usually regarded as the most dangerous radioactive material anywhere on the planet. Mm -hmm. So this stuff is in the environment. And as long as it's in the environment, the burrowing animals are likely to bring it to the surface and the wind will pick them up and it'll be blowing around and people that are working there or happen to be walking through the refuge are likely to uh, inhale it and then they've got it in their body and it eventually it wrecks their health. And this is especially bad for children. If I happen to inhale plutonium at this point in my life, I'm too old, you know, I would die before it created cancer. (laughs) But that's not true of a child. I also understand that seven different schools in the greater Denver metro area have banned any kind of school outings to the Rocky Flats Refuge. that's, That's true, yeah. There also seems to be this push to get people there. For example, the Rocky Mountain Greenery will be a trail from northeast of Denver all the way to Rocky Mountain National Park, about 50 miles, like a mini Pacific Crest Trail or Appalachia Trail. It's expected to attract large crowds of hikers, bikers, and horseback riders, and they're going to have an overpass and an underpass to get onto well-marked trails through the refuge. What's wrong with this picture? One of the things that's wrong with it is that when the refuge was created, they had to do an environmental impact statement. And the public was strongly opposed to opening the refuge. They decided they would do it anyway. 82% of the people that commented on the impact statement said, don't open the refuge. And only 11% were in favor of opening it. But they made a map showing where the trails would be and where the visitor center would be. And since then, 
partly because of the uh, long trail that's being built. That, that wasn't even being talked about when they did the EIS. So they've got a new set of trails that would take people on the site, and they relocated the visitor center and made it much larger than it was before. So we have brought a lawsuit. We're trying to, the next phase of it is to get the court to require Fish and Wildlife to do a new environmental impact statement, which would include, of course, uh, sampling to find out how safe or unsafe the uh, site may be. What about the wildlife at the refuge? Doesn't having this space give them a safe place in which to propagate and go forth and multiply? There is, in fact, an abundance of wildlife of all kinds, uh, but the ones that are most likely to be killed accidentally happen to be deer that are trying to cross a road that goes by beside the site. And they often find when a deer has been hit by a car and is killed, they often examine the body and they find that these deer have plutonium in their bodies. So they didn't die from the plutonium in the body, but they did have it. And people that study the genetic effects of radiation say that genetic effects of radiation on deer or elk or any other animals, the foxes, you know, all the animals that happen to exist at Rocky Flats, that they may pass on harm to future generations that could even eliminate that uh, species of creatures in this area. And the same thing could happen with humans. The, um, the man that actually discovered the, harm, the genetic harm of radiation on creatures, his name is Mueller, and he got the Nobel Prize in medicine for finding out that a certain kind of fly exposed. Fruit flies. Yeah. It was on, his work was on yeah. fruit flies. Yeah. Yeah, you know about this study. He later, before he died, he wrote a paper saying that human beings could be eliminated if they take plutonium into their body. Eventually, it will have a genetic effect that will eliminate a whole strand of creatures, whether it's deer or elk or humans or whatever it is, you know, fruit flies. There's a scientist in California who uh, came to Rocky Flats in 19... 96, Sean Smallwood, he came to Rocky Flats in 1996, and he studied the burrowing animals on the site. And then he began to look into the question of, had there been any genetic studies of wildlife at Rocky Flats? And he said there have been no studies, no genetic studies of wildlife at Rocky Flats or at any other Department of Energy nuclear weapons plant in the country. He underscores that as a real need if we want to take care of wildlife. Let's shift this a little bit. For Nuclear Hot Seat, we have previously talked with Alicia Casey about Rocky Flats for our episode number 369 on July 17th. At that time, we discussed what were then upcoming court hearings and community actions being planned. Where are we? with the resistance to the opening and the challenge to the opening of this proposed wildlife refuge? We took the case to court in the, in the federal court about three weeks ago. The judge ruled against us and gave Fish and Wildlife permission to go ahead and proceed with their plans to open the refuge. 
And originally they said they would open it on the 15th of September, which is, uh, you know, it's nine days away. As for the lawsuit, our uh, lawsuit has got one more crucial step, and that is to require the uh, Fish and Wildlife to do a new environmental impact statement. And that's got, that has yet to be ruled on by the judge. And I think the chance of getting a positive ruling from our side and requiring them to do that is very strong. That would delay the opening of the refuge, wouldn't it? If he actually rules in our favor, uh, that's right. If they've opened it, they have to close it and do the environmental impact statement. And that usually takes a year or sometimes even longer to do it. Let me ask you a personal question. You live in Boulder, only about 10 miles away from the entrance to the refuge. If you found out that your grandchildren were planning to hike or bike through Rocky Flats, what would your response be? Well, I would do my best not to allow them to do that. In fact, I do have grandchildren. I even have great-grandchildren now. They've learned about Rocky Flats from me, and none of them have any plans to go hiking on the wildlife refuge. I don't think it'd be a good idea. What next steps are possible beyond the lawsuit for another environmental impact study? What we really must do is convince the local population that it is not wise to go to the refuge. Even if we get the environmental impact statement and they do it, they produce it, the environment will still be contaminated. And if they open the refuge, people can be exposed. So we must convince the public, I think. If the public is convinced that they, the refuge should stay closed, and if members of Congress are convinced that the refuge must stay closed, then I think that we have a good chance that we can require Fish and Wildlife to keep it closed. I'm not sure we can do it by law. We have to do it by persuasion and providing of information. One of the people that I work with is trying hard to get members of Congress to agree to get the National Academy of Sciences to do the sampling to find out the condition of the site so that the sampling is not done by the Department of Energy or its contractor, but is done by a totally independent group that knows what they're doing. What can the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat do to possibly support you in these efforts? <laughs> well, uh, it would be helpful to put pressure on your own, wherever people are that are listening to you. You don't have to be in Colorado to get your member of Congress to urge the Colorado delegation to ask the Fish and Wildlife to keep the site closed and to write letters to Fish and Wildlife itself. You know, work with the Colorado delegation that opposes Rocky Flats and get the help of other members of Congress and the Senate to join in this activity. Is there anything else you can think of that you'd like to add at this time? I will invite people to come to Colorado and enjoy our incredible beauty. And there are a lot of places you could go in Colorado where you won't be exposed to plutonium like you would be at Rocky Flats. It's a beautiful place. Leroy, you have been doing this work for almost 40 years. That's right. And 
thank you for all that you have done, and thanks for all that you are continuing to do, and for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Leroy Moore of Rocky Mountain Peace and Justice Center. The activists did a great job of making their presence known this past Saturday when, unfortunately, the so-called wildlife refuge was opened. And the Colorado mainstream media has been doing a decent job of coverage as well. Everybody, keep up the good work, and we'll be following it here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Activist shout-outs! On October 5th through 7th, there's going to be an intertribal gathering at Red Butte, Montana, to stop uranium mining and transport. The first day, October 5th, is open to tribal members only and closed to the public, but the 6th and 7th will be open to the public as well. We'll have a link up to this event on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 378. This is a shout-out to all of you, and that is that I'm in need of more information from Japan, as the news trail has been a bit thin lately. I don't know if that's the Facebook algorithms or censorship or whatever, but if you are in a group that is in Japan or that deals with Japan, please share it on the Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat page or email it to me at info at nuclearhotseat.com. And I had a blast in San Diego reading from my book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Beyond. Signing copies was a lot of fun. We did this at Martha Sullivan's Grassroots Oasis. Now, if you missed the event, I will be in San Diego in the area again in November, and we'll let you know in advance so that you can make plans and we can rendezvous and meet. And if you can help organize a book tour in your area, drop me an email at yesiglowinthedark at gmail.com, and let's see what we can get going. It was a real experience for me to read out loud to an audience about having been so alone in a house one mile from Three Mile Island when that reactor malfunctioned. What I went through was, well, if you want to know, you can get your copy of the book now on Amazon.com. Yes, I glow in the dark. Here's today's final thought. Last Wednesday, when it looked like Brunswick Nuclear was going to stay open through Hurricane Florence, I started calling my way through the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which sent me over to Duke Energy, where I was trying to find out a few simple facts. What would it take to trigger a shutdown? Who calls shutdown? Is it corporate or someone on site like the plant manager? How long do hurricane force winds, 74 miles per hour or higher, have to be sustained to trigger a shutdown? If during that time there's a momentary lull and the wind drops to below 74 miles per hour, does the odometer reset or is the timing continuous? And what in the world makes Duke Energy think that there's not going to be hurricane force winds on site that will require them to shut down when there's a hurricane staring them in the eye? It took 10 separate phone calls to 10 separate individuals at the NRC and Duke Energy to learn that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission does not make standard policy for shutdown of nuclear reactors or what will trigger a shutdown in a weather event. That's left up to the individual operator owners, in this case Duke Energy. The NRC did say that shutdown would need to take place prior to hurricane force winds being measured on site, 74 miles per hour or higher, and sustained, though the length of how long it had to be sustained was never defined. 
the procedures for shutdown would be set in motion somewhere between 2 and 12 hours before the storm hit the site. The measurements of the weather were done by the Duke Staff Meteorologist. Based on National Weather Service and National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration readings. That meteorologist reports to the Brunswick senior shift operator, and that is the person who actually gets to call whether a shutdown's going to happen or not. The first few Duke people I spoke with tried to invoke the there, there, Missy, don't worry your pretty little head about it defense to get me off the story. And one actually said, Aren't you splitting hairs here? when I kept pushing to find out exactly what would trigger the shutdown. The Duke rep I eventually spoke with said it would be triggered by winds of 73 miles an hour, sustained for five minutes as recorded on site, meaning the hurricane would have already arrived. A controlled shutdown, he said, would take four to six hours per reactor, meaning they would be shutting down the reactors in the middle of a hurricane. He went on to assure me that there was a full crew on site and that he had told his family that, in an emergency, he was in, quote, the safest place possible. He doubted there would be flooding, and when I asked about water cresting from the Cape Fear River, he admitted he hadn't considered that. When I asked about loss of off-site power, he was happy to tell me there were backup generators on site, though he could not tell me how many or their elevation in case of flooding as happened at Fukushima. When I asked how much fuel they had for generators, he said they had large tanks of fuel. He could not tell me how much was in them, but asserted that there could always be more fuel brought in. How, I asked. With 20 to 40 inches of rain predicted, roads were undoubtedly going to be flooded. How would they get that extra diesel should it be required? He had no answer for that one. Then I told him about Turkey Point last year which tried to keep muscling through operation during Hurricane Irma and eventually had to scram, do an emergency shutdown in the middle of a hurricane. That seemed to shake him a bit because he hadn't known about Irma and the Scram. Doesn't that sound like the name of a band, Irma and the Scram? Anyway, as we talked on Wednesday, the assumption was that Duke was not going to shut down Brunswick. But less than 24 hours later, on Thursday... They announced that they were shutting down both reactors. Interestingly, the Duke spokeswoman said that the company was, quote, following its procedures to shut down the reactors in advance of the storm as the NRC mandates. They always like to frame themselves in the best way possible, even if it's not completely the truth. But at least it was shut down in advance. And now that safest place possible is a nuclear island surrounded by floodwaters cut off from land transportation, without running water, and with food running so low, supplies had to be airlifted in by helicopter. The crew of about 300 has been on site without relief since Wednesday, with porta-potties, no showers, and as of now, no way out. 20-foot elevation and a 22-foot seawall? River flooding has already been measured at 24.33 feet in at least one location, and the math is holding but only barely. Dealing with a breaking nuclear news story like Brunswick and Hurricane Florence showed me that this program can hold its own with any mainstream media reporters and come out on top. More than one Duke representative I spoke with told me they were surprised that I was as well-informed as I was and could push such specific points, 
and they seemed shocked that I would not back down when they pulled the their their Missy card. When it comes to the nuclear industry, what appeared obvious is that the left and right hands don't always know what they're doing or what they're saying, or what they think they're doing, but they don't. And when they communicate with the public, they're often either garbling, obfuscating, framing themselves in the best way possible, or simply lying. Now, these are not bad people. They're all just trying to do their jobs, as defined by their bosses, as best they can. But clearly they, or somebody over them, hasn't thought things through all the way. And when it comes to nuclear, that's not good enough. We may have squeaked by with no Fukushima on the Atlantic this time. But my experience dealing with the powers that be in charge of our safety does not make me feel confident that this will always be the case. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, September 18, 2018. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, duenrenard.wordpress.com, miningawareness.wordpress.com, fukuleaks.org, a.k.a. Simply Info, usnews.com, thehill.com, cpr.com, denverpost.com, abqjournal.com, latimes.com, utilitydive.com, nj.com, lohud.com, chicagotribune.com, asahi.com, bbc.com, usmail.co.uk, panarthnews.wordpress.com, u.38degrees.org.uk, sputniknews.com, bologna.org, the soul-dead cubicle drones who grind out press releases for the World Nuclear News, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and a big shout-out to Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world. You are in 123 countries on six continents, and we're still counting. And a big welcome to all of you who are listening on our growing network of broadcast stations around the U.S. You show your love for life on this planet by being willing to know the truth and then acting on it. I am so glad you are with me on this journey together as kick-ass defenders of nuclear truth and supporters of atomic awareness. Now, if you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered to your email every week, it's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down looking for the yellow box. It takes a while, especially if you're on a tablet or a smartphone, and sign up for a weekly email link to the latest show. Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2018, Libby, Halevi, and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that in nuclear, the number one issue is, and must always be, long-range safety for people and the environment. Pass it on. Okay. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call, so do not go back to sleep, because we are all truly in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.